Well, um, we're going to get started with uh, continuing our study. We have been uh, going through the Old Testament. We've been we we've come to Second Samuel, uh, and we're in the middle of chapter six, or really toward the tail end of chapter six, and then we'll 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 get into the first half of chapter seven um, tonight. And so. I want to draw your attention, if you had a chance to, um, I don't know if y'all can see me, but if you had a chance to print off the little sheet of paper that I that I uh, sent you, the little packet, at the very top of that packet, there is a timeline of the kingship of David. I have just a few events on there. I don't have, I don't have all of the events that took place in his life, but I have a few events on there. Um, that timeline there came from, uh, Eugene Merrill wrote a book called kingdom of priests. And, uh, he, 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 that, that book is basically kind of a, a, sort of a history of the nation of Israel, uh, walking through the old Testament, putting things in their place and, and as far as timeline and, and things like that. And so, um, I've basically taken some of his timeline and put it on, on there at the top of the page, because some of the things we're going to deal with tonight. And I thought it was just a good uh, reference for you to be able to go back to and look at and see, as we talk about, as we deal with some of these years, these are not drawn to scale. So you're going to notice that there's some bigger gaps in between uh, some years than others. That's just on me being a rookie at making timelines. And so, um, but, but by and large, the most, the, some of the more important years are up there. We're not going to talk about all of these events that took place tonight. We're going to deal with those, you know, in subsequent weeks. But there's a couple of things that we are dealing with. And I thought it would be helpful to kind of look at uh, some very important things from, uh, from, da- from David's timeline, the timeline of David's reign. Now, remember last week we were talking, we dealt with David taking, uh, not only taking Jerusalem, and, uh, but then also fighting against the Philistines and pushing back against the Philistines as the, as the Philistines saw that it was an opportune time when David's taking over the throne, that it's an opportune time then to go and attack David because one, one of the biggest threats to the Philistines' uh, existence really is a strong Israel. If Israel is strong, then it means that well, essentially, there's only room enough for one in the land, as it were, one top dog. And so for the Philistines, there's no incentive for them to sit back and every incentive for them to push forward into the, into the land um, to try to take back control of, of, a, of, of King, from King David. And so as the nation comes under David's rule, it's going to be really important for the Philistines um, to, to really fight back. But what we also saw was that David, uh, the Lord gives David victory twice in that uh, – uh, last week. And so what we're looking at in chapters five to eight of second Samuel is this repeating pattern of battle and victory followed by house building, or you might say kingdom building. And this becomes a really important theme throughout all of David's kingship is he's bringing Israel together as a united uh, kingdom. And he's going to do that both physically by conquering people and by building his own house and his and the prosperity of the nation, and he's going to do that spiritually, uh, as we saw last week by him bringing the Ark of the Covenant uh, in, from Kiriath Jerem all the way back to Jerusalem to Zion, and so uh, he, he's he's 
there's, it's a two-sided approach. One side is the political reality of Israel and trying to establish the, the kingdom and expand it and, and do what Joshua, what wasn't completed under Joshua, what the judges by no means could do and what Saul certainly failed to do, uh, which is to drive out the enemies that they were supposed to drive out from the beginning. And so then we also can, we can say political realities are being accomplished here. There are spiritual realities bringing the ark back to Jerusalem being accomplished here. And then there are theological realities that are also being accomplished here in that David is really set up by God as uh, the new Adam, as it were, who is instilling uh, God's kingdom in uh, through the earth or through the land. And so as point person of that, here is King David who comes along. He's handpicked by God. Um, he's, uh, you know, basically seen by the people as we talked about in Psalm two on Sunday, coincidentally, or by, by God's providence, I should say that, um, he, he's, you know, appointed not only, um, uh, king, but son of God in, in some capacity. And so he is, he is um, much like Adam in instilling or installing uh, God's kingdom on the earth as he drives out the pagan enemies from before him and sets up the literal physical kingdom of God there in the land. And so uh, he brings the ark in and remember on the way, the ark uh, is about to fall and um, Uzzah reaches out his hand and touches it and God kills him immediately. And David has this moment of panic where he's sort of like, wait a minute, what's going on? I don't know what this ark is going to do to me if we bring this in here. So let's put it in the house of Obed-Edom. And so he puts it in the house of a priest and, and the Lord blesses the priest. And so as the Lord blesses the priest, um, he realizes that it's reported to him that the Lord intends to bless us. And so we, we should bring the ark back in. So he celebrates, they celebrate that the Lord isn't going to kill them after all. And, but they do need to be careful about what uh, the Lord has already told them are the rules in handling the ark. And so David, who was initially petrified, then brings the ark or is ready to bring the ark in onto Zion and establish it in, uh, in the tent. Now, before we continue on with that, with that part of the story, I want to, just take a moment to, to think about the events of David's life and put things in chronology. And there's a, there's a very important reason why I want to do this. And I, I, I'll talk about that in just a minute. But the first thing that we need to see is that there is a, a very important king, the king of Tyre. His name is Hiram, and he's the son of uh, uh, Abibaal. Abiba and he reigned in Tyre from about 980 uh, to, to, 490, or to 947. And he is established as a contemporary. So he's a king of Tyre, which is up in, in the, if you can picture the land, um, he's up in the north and the, the west. So if, if Jerusalem was, you know, the heart, the middle of America, uh, he would be up in Seattle. All right. So, you know, far north, northwest area. Uh, and I guess probably more like in Canada, but he, he, he's, he's out of the land, but, but, uh, but he, he is a he is a, he has established himself as a friend of both David and Solomon. And we see this in your verse packet, the very first verse, uh, from second Samuel, this is just a couple, a chapter ago where it says Hiram king of Tyre sent messengers to David and cedar trees 
also carpenters and masons who built David's house. Now, you remember that, uh, oh, and, and look at 1 Kings 5, 8, and 10. Hiram sent to Solomon saying, so this is the next book, but Hiram sent to Solomon saying, I have heard the message that you have sent to me. I am ready to do all that you desire in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. So Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired. That's for the building of the temple that's to come. So all of that was to show that that this Hiram character in uh, who's the king of Tyre is a friend and contemporary of both David and Solomon. And we know historically he reigned from 984 to 947. But one of the issues, obviously, that you, you're kind of hit with as you're reading that and as you're thinking about um, when Hiram actually reigned, David takes the throne in Jerusalem in uh, 1004 B.C., so David goes in, remember from Hebron, he marches up after Ishbosheth's death and he takes over Jerusalem and he establishes his throne there. And we're told right after that, Hiram contacts him, who's the king of Tyre, and he, he sends to him uh, help to build his house. So there's David conquers, then there's David's house that's being built. Uh, but what then you're hit with is the reality that, well, the event with Hiram sending his, you know, supplies down to David to build his house doesn't happen until later in David's reign. And this, this is, I think this is really pretty important. So what you, you start to realize is that um, a lot of the building projects that David engaged in, they're put on the front end of the narrative in Second Samuel, but chronologically they happen more on the back end uh, at the end of David's reign. And, and um, so they, they happen on the back end, but they, um, they're told to us on the front end. And uh, we're, we're also told um, that the, the chronicler, the person who writes the book of Chronicles, indicates um, that all of this was prepared, uh, especially the, the tabernacle that David makes, it was all prepared after David had constructed the building projects for himself. So he built the house for himself and he built the things that he needed to for himself to establish the kingdom in Jerusalem, which is a, a, a crazy undertaking. If you think about that, moving all those people into Jerusalem and establishing Jerusalem as a, 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 the center point of life for the Jew, that's a tremendous undertaking. And it's not one that you can do in the matter of a year. And so David, it actually took David uh, many years to, to get established in Jerusalem, get everything situated in Jerusalem to the point where he could then bring the ark into Jerusalem and prepare a place for it. And the chronicler tells us after he had built all those things for himself, then he brought the ark and then started doing a lot of the, the more ceremonial or religious aspects of it for himself. Now, that brings the... to to mind the question about the location of all of this and sort of uh, where everything is situated because you're, you're seeing this term Mount Zion, which is something you're probably pretty familiar with from your own, you know, just reading of the Bible. Um, Mount Zion is an actual physical mountain in the area of Jerusalem. And so if you can, this is a, um, if you can see the map here on your screen, this is, um, this is going to be after really, Pretty, pretty well after the time of David 
is, is all of this because you can see, I'm going to see if I've got it here. Ah, there's my little laser pointer. Can everybody see that? No, nobody can see the laser pointer. Ah, oh, forget it. Um, so, well, anyway, uh, I wonder if I can maybe circle it here. Does everybody see the circle? Yes, yes. Yes, you yes. see the circle. Okay, there is Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is where the temple is going to be situated. So do you see that red circle? Mount Moriah is going to be where the temple is going to be situated. And then just south of that, so if you come down past the Ophel Ridge, you have uh, the city of David, which is just, it's adjoining that. I mean, it's, it's really, you could probably throw a baseball and hit it, but um, it, it's super close. So you have over here, the Mount of Olives, right, is, is looking out. You've probably seen that picture where you can look from the Mount of Olives to see the Dome of the Rock. Okay, down here south is where Mount Zion sits. So Mount Zion is south of the Temple Mount. Now, um, so you see David brings the, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant and sits it on Mount Zion, not on the Temple Mount, Mount Moriah, where the temple will eventually be located. But what happens is Solomon is eventually going to uh, build the temple and Mount Zion is going to be incorporated into uh, Mount Moriah. Essentially, the borders of Mount Moriah are going to be expanded. The city of Jerusalem is going to be expanded to include Mount, Mount Zion. And so eventually what happens is when you say Mount Zion, you mean the place where there is the house of worship, even though they're technically geographically on two different hills. Um, the reason that's important is because there's a lot of people out there that will make hay about Mount Zion being a different hill and they'll say, you know, the Lord's going to come back and on Mount Zion, quit talking about the temple Mount. It's the Mount. Okay. Forget all of that. And, and, and just say that over time, after David had brought the Ark of the Covenant on Mount Zion and situated it there, um, it became sort of associated with the worship of Yahweh. And so when the worship of Yahweh was formalized on Mount Zion and there was a temple built there, a formal temple by Solomon built there, all of it kind of becomes Mount Zion. It just becomes this, this sort of uh, name that you use for Mount Zion. And then over time, especially in the prophets, you start getting um, the whole city of Jerusalem being called Mount Zion. So if you, if Mount Zion doesn't always mean the singular hill there in Jerusalem. Sometimes Mount Zion can, be, can just be the place where God is worshipped, and sometimes it can be broadened out to the, the place where um, the, the Lord rules and reigns, like his, his governing spot, uh, like we would say the White House. Uh, or something like that. It would be kind of like his his place of, of governance where his decrees go out. And so uh, it, it, there's sort of this broadening out of the term Mount Zion. But right now in David's time, Mount Zion is a physical location and it's a hill right there south. And the city of David is adjoined to, um, the, I guess you'd say the old city of Jerusalem, which is called the city of David, is adjoined to um, the newer part when I say newer I mean like 3,000 years old so <laughs> but but they're 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 situated in two different places but they'll eventually be broadened out to just when you say Mount Zion it, it's sort of the place where God dwells if you will uh 
more than anything. I hope that makes sense. But if you have questions, just type them in the chat box and, and we'll get to them here in just a, just a minute. Um, so that, and this will kind of give you the idea, maybe a little bit better map. I hope everybody can see that. Um, same, same kind of deal. You can ignore the most of the lines, except that big red circle there that shows you uh, where the, the where Zion is situated. Um, so uh, now thinking about geography, let's come back to the chron chronological part of it just for a second. Um, so the Ark of the Covenant then is going to be brought into Jerusalem late in David's timeline. So if you're thinking chronologically, then some of these events are happening on the back end of David's life. So David's desire um, to build the temple uh, is it must have been broached at the very end of his life because it, it he, he's going to ask the Lord to build a temple. In fact, we're going to see it today. Um, and but all of that must have come a little bit later. And if you think about logically how those things play out, it makes so much more sense that the, these events take place towards the end of David's life. Because as David situates the political atmosphere in Jerusalem, it's going to take a while before he gets all of those things in place and, and unites Israel under his monarchy before then taking up the more religious aspects of, um, of the Jewish culture. And so, uh, it, 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 so that, that happens on the, on more towards the tail end of David's life. Um, and so you've got this David creating this sort of governmental structure, this per perfect governmental structure on the one hand, and then he's got to also defend the nation on the other hand against other threats. So there is, there's this tremendous amount of push and pull that David is going through um, that that's going to leave some of the more religious aspects toward the end. And so then he starts to pursue the religious uh, aspects of it, the, the religious pursuits later on in his life. Now, I want to talk just briefly about the reason why that's important. We intuitively read every document that's in narrative form in a timeline. Just think about how confusing movies are that are not on a, on a singular timeline, but that jump back and forth between multiple timelines. I mean, just think about that for just a second. I don't, um, th there was a movie called Dunkirk that came out just a while back that was um, this big war movie. And it was not told in, in a chronological retelling. It was told in this, if you can imagine a war movie not being told chronologically, it, it was very confusing and very hard to follow. In the end, you, you leave going, what in the world happened? Because we are trained to think a story must be told chronologically. And so when we read the Bible, we intuitively go into the, the Old Testament narrative. We do this with the Gospels a lot, too. We go into those, those narratives, and we want them to tell us, first this happened, then this happened, then that happened. And when we walk away... We, we sort of have a panic attack if we get too many details at once because we think, how am I ever going to keep all these things straight? How, do, how am I going to remember what, you know, Solomon's birth name, what really was and, and, and what, you know, who, who was, who did this when? And then, then what happened? I can't remember the, how the story goes. And so we, we naturally want things to flow chronologically. But if you remove the chronological aspect of the story, and I tell you, the author is not concerned with you knowing the chronology of David's life. 
In some cases he is. In some cases he tells us, well, David reigned for so long or Solomon reigned for so long. And he, he started reigning, you know, in this year and, and, then, and then he reigned for so long. In some cases they do give you those little year pointers. But then in a lot of other cases they don't. And what that tells you then is their point is something different than merely giving you a history of the life of David. That's not what he's trying to do. In fact, he's trying to point to some very serious and real things that are going on in God building his kingdom. He, he, we'll see the, the author of 2 Samuel or in, the author of any of the Gospels point to many things along the way um, uh, about what it means to trust in God and how David discovered trusting in the Lord. But he may tell you that with two stories that were 20 years apart. Because the point is that, that you understand trusting the Lord is what came out of David's life. Or fearing the Lord, uh, honoring the Lord, obeying the Lord. Those are the things that came out of David's life. Not David ruled in this, this land for four years. That's not the most important thing that can be established. And so when you understand that, it will change your reading of the scriptures. So when you go into the gospels, you can see that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they, most of the time they line up chronologically. They, they tell things in, in pretty much similar order. As an example, one comes to mind, Jesus walking into the temple and cleansing the temple. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that happens in Holy Week. He goes in the temple and he turns over the tables and uh, he's, you know, he, he has the right to do that. In John, it happens early on in his ministry. Um, and it's not that John is telling you this happened early on in his ministry. He's not even telling you about the chronology at all. He just puts it earlier in his ministry. Why does he do that? Some people say, well, he's giving you two tellings. There, there was two times Jesus went in the temple. No, I don't think so. I think what John is trying to say is that Jesus has the right and the authority. And the one that I told you about in chapter one, who is the word eternal, has the right and the authority to go into the temple and do with it as he wills. And you're going to see him do that over the course of this book. And so it doesn't matter to John when this occurred. It matters that it occurred. And so he's trying to tell you that. Well, when you understand that, it changes your reading of the Bible. Because now you're looking at the, the paragraph before and the paragraph after and going, in context, why did the author arrange these stories the way he did? The, these narratives the way they did? They're true. They happened. They might have happened 20 years apart, but why did he put them together like that? Well, he's trying to make a point to you that you need to understand. And so it helps us to read the Bible a little bit more carefully. And so hopefully we're going to see that along the way. Um, those are the chronological aspects. Were there any questions about that, Blake? Nope. Okay. Uh, if you do have any questions about it, put them in. We'll get them at the end. Um, okay. So the next part we go to is... Uh, is in chapter starts in chapter seven where David's line is established as he wants to build a formal house for Yahweh for for God he wants to build him a formal house and um, right now he has set up a tent and it housed only the ark so David has the people have their fear has been removed a little bit from the ark, at least um, their fear that God is going to kill them. They still have, they now have a healthy respect for it. And so they, they have celebrated the fact that the Lord intends to prosper them by bringing the ark into Jerusalem and situating it on Mount, uh, on Mount Zion. But uh, David sets up really just basically a tent. And I, I want to read that in 2 Samuel uh, 6, 
16 to 23, and this will kind of close out this little part of, of chapter six. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering his burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread and a portion of meat and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house and David returned to bless the household, his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, uh, servants, female servants, and as, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above his, all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make him myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had, had no child to the day of her death. Um, okay, so here we get this very strange scene where David is really happy, and he's apparently disrobing himself, uh, to, to one degree or another and dancing in front of, of the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, he, goes to, he goes back to his house and his wife, uh, who is Saul's daughter, had been watching him from the window and she meets him and she says that David dancing in front of the Ark was his way of honoring himself. So you can imagine her her her. Uh, frustration with him or her, um, her, yeah, her, her rebuke of the King is that she, she, she probably sees being of the line of Saul and probably familiar with the kingly house that the Lord is to be honored, uh, which is ironic because Saul didn't do that. Uh, but, but she sees, you know, that he's to be treated with some, some manner of decorum and, she looks out and sees David there honoring himself and thereby disgracing the throne in front of the slave girl. So it's really two charges. One, you're distracting from the worship of the Lord because you're acting a fool. And two, you're doing this in front of the, your, the slave girls who are you know, watching you. And that's not fitting of a king. That's not keeping with the decorum of the, the king of Israel. And, uh, and, so what's interesting and what David says is that he, he, see, he sees himself not so much as the king, but Yahweh's servant. And his celebration is honoring to the Lord because he is genuinely from his heart so excited about the Lord's presence now being in Israel and uh, in, in, in Jerusalem on Mount Zion that he can't help but be overcome with joy. And so he doesn't care, really, he says, about the decorum of the king of Israel because he's a servant of the Lord and he's acting the way a servant of the Lord would act, 
when the Lord graces you with his presence. Now imagine that for just a second. This is the, the, the embodiment, the Ark of the Covenant of the presence of the Lord there in Zion. So much so that it just killed a guy who touched it. And so David it has been graced with the Lord's physical presence. Can you imagine if you saw yourself as a servant of God, how uh, excited that would make you, the fact that the Lord has graced you with his presence? Uh, imagine just for a moment, we, we're all together in, uh, at Emmanuel Baptist Church, and we're uh, you know, praying and singing and preaching and you know, all the stuff that we would normally do on a Sunday morning. And in walks Jesus and just sits down in the pew and starts singing with us and uh, praying with us and reading scripture with us. Uh, how would you respond? What would you do? What would you think? Um, that's the way David is seeing this right now, that the physical presence of God is here. So how could I be not overcome with joy and to maintain some uh, pomp and circumstance is actually not humility, it's arrogance. And that's David's kind of twist on it. That's, a, that's an arrogant position. This is the physical presence of God here amongst us. And so in the text, and this is part of the, the thing that you start to pay attention to, is that the author mentions three times in this passage that Michal or Michael, however you want to pronounce it, is the daughter of Saul. And uh, that's, that seems important. You know, when somebody mentions something in a paragraph three times, it, it should grab our attention that she's mentioned as the daughter of Saul three times, and she comes out with this charge against the king is probably, um, is probably pretty, pretty important. Um, so what, what, we, what we see, though, is that though she's mentioned as the daughter of Saul three times, the, the end of the, the narrative leaves us with her without what? Without a child. So the author is reminding you, remember, this is the daughter of Saul. Remember, this is the daughter of Saul. Remember, this is the daughter of Saul. She ended childless. Now, what does that mean? Why is that significant? Well, it's probably significant because God had promised to David the throne. And there is a challenge now. David is not acting like a king. Well, then there's the, the question, is David the rightful king or is he acting a fool and God's going to punish him? Well, who does, he, who does the Lord honor and who does he cut off? It seems like he honors David and he cuts off Michael and therefore Saul from the throne. Saul has no more heir. She was the last and she's gone. So, and she's left childless. So it seems as though, make no mistake about it, you're reading the Old Testament and you're a Jew, you understand perfectly well, barrenness is the Lord's doing. Opening the womb, that's a gift from the Lord. So that a woman ends childless is, that, that is the way that is understood. There's no doubt about it. And so it ends with David, with God basically saying through the barrenness of Michal, well, David was right, essentially. So one thing we have to remember is that the Mosaic tabernacle 
continued to operate in Gibeon throughout David's reign and on into Solomon's reign. So there is still the Mosaic Tabernacle that is situated in Gibeon and in Zion is only the Ark of the Covenant. Now it's clear David wants to get all of those things back down into Jerusalem and onto Mount Zion, but he doesn't just yet. For one reason or another, he wants to build the Lord a more permanent house. And so uh, you can see this in uh, just, I've, I've got a couple of examples down here. I think First Kings uh, 3, 4 to 5. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there for there was a great high place. This is Solomon, by the way. Sol- Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on the altar uh, at Gibeon. Uh, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream that night. Okay, so go down to First Chronicles, the next one, First Chronicles sixteen thirty nine, and he left Zadok the priest and his brothers the priest before the tabernacle of the of the Lord in the high place that was at Gibeon in First Chronicles twenty one twenty nine for the tabernacle of the Lord which Moses had made in the wilderness and the altar of burnt offering were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. So those. The, the tabernacle of Moses was still there. Now, what, do, what did the religion of the Jews look like during the time of Saul and the time of David and, and all that? We, we just don't have a whole lot of evidence. Nobody really gives us much, much clue about that. Obviously, the Lord didn't seek to preserve that through his word over, over time because we just don't have a whole lot of details about how, sorry, my watch is going on, um, how, how, um, their, what their religion actually looked like. But what is clear is that the Mosaic Tabernacle was there in Gibeon. Uh, in Jerusalem then, on Zion, is basically uh, similar to what would, be, would have been a tabernacle, but probably a lot smaller, just a, a tent-like structure that has only the Ark of the Covenant in it. And, you know, obviously David is seen here get, putting sacrifices you know, giving sacrifice to it and celebration and praise in this passage. But, you know, as far as anything else they used it for and how they, you know, responded to it, we just don't have a ton of details until the temple is actually constructed. But it was probably a lot smaller. It was uh, because it only had to house the heart Ark of the Covenant. And it didn't seem like there was a ton of priestly duties that were actually done in front of it because most of that still, it seems, went on in Gibeon. Um Obviously, it had to change a little bit because the Ark of the Covenant was where, you know, the high priest would sprinkle a lot of things on uh, blood and things like that on the mercy seat. And and obviously some of that was not going on unless it was done by David himself. And so uh, we don't really have tons of information on that, honestly. So um, we just have to kind of do without it and just see what we do have in the scriptures. But um, yeah, go ahead. Shannon thinks you skirted the issue of exactly how undressed he was. (laughs) uh so you're asking was he naked (laughs) i don't don't know (laughs) i I really don't know and perhaps um perhaps perhaps he perhaps he was uh he was undignified but that would that would call call into question if he was how he could be more undignified than that <laughs> because that's what he tells <laughs> he tells his wife just wait i'll become more undignified what would that mean if that was the case i'm not sure but um but uh but yes you're right i did skirt that um <laughs> no pun intended um 
<laughs> I'm going to pretend like there was a lot of laughter to my pun there. Um, so, uh, now, he, so David is bothered because at the, at the beginning of chapter seven, David is really bothered because he lives in a house of cedar. He lives in a quite nice house, it seems. And, um, and God is dwelling via the Ark of the Covenant. God is dwelling in a mere tent. And this really bothers David quite a bit. And I, I want to read this. We're just going to read all of 2 Samuel 7, 1 to 17, because it, it's, it's really important. Um, all right, there in your verse packet, the very last section. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his, surra- his surrounding enemies, that tells you that this is at the end of his life, by the way, um, or that coincides with that kind of timeline. The king said to Nathan, the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word to any of the judges of Israel when I, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with, I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time, from, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make a ha- make you a house. When your days are fulfilled you and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and, will, uh, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And we're going to take up some more of this next week because this is a really important passage, um, in, especially in, this, in the narrative of David. But uh, we're going to deal with some of the just sort of more surface level stuff tonight uh, on this, on this passage, but David is wanting to build him a tent. And, and so the, the, the way, uh, the author conveys this is basically David and, and Nathan are whatever sitting in Starbucks and they're just kind of chatting. And, um, and David, David's like, you know, here I am living in this big mansion and here is God dwelling in this little tent. And so, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build him a house of cedar. And Nathan is like, that sounds 
awesome. Why wouldn't it sound awesome? Of course, we want to honor the Lord. He is dwelling amongst us. So we want to give him due respect of putting the Ark of the Covenant, not in some tent that can be knocked over by a tornado, but some massive building that will stand the test of time as God rightfully deserves. And so Nathan says, absolutely sure. But that night, some other, uh, the Lord comes to uh, uh, Nathan and says, no, uh, he's not going to build me a house. In fact, it's not David that's going to be the builder of Yahweh's house, but Yahweh is actually going to build David a house, another house. So David already has a house. Yahweh is going to build him another house, but a different kind of house. He's going to build him a house with people. He's going to build him a lineage. He's going to establish his throne uh, forever so that when David dies, his son takes the throne and his son and his sons and his son's son's sons after them are going to, are going to take the, the throne. But what's really key in this passage, or at least the key for tonight, we're going to get to some other important parts next week. But um, one of the keys for, for tonight is why the Lord says no. Now, later he's going to tell David another reason why David can't build him a house uh, and why it's going to be Solomon. But, but at least at, at first, he gives him the, uh, another answer. That is, and, and, and that is that he has been on the move with his people. To date, his people, Israel, have been on the move. They have not firmly set down their roots in the land yet. Uh, and they won't really until a little bit into Solomon's reign. They won't firmly establish their, their, uh, their roots into the land beginning to really put their thumb on top of their enemies toward the very end of David's reign and then the beginning of Solomon's reign. They start to put their thumb on their enemies where their enemies can't really threaten them anymore, and they start to establish roots a little bit more. And so Yahweh's response to David via Nathan is, why would I settle down when my people are not settled down? Why would I settle down when my people are unsettled? And the, the point that is being driven home in the narrative with the, the way that the author is, is, is demonstrating how these events came to be is that he's showing God as a God who travels with his people. He's not going to leave them. He's not going to dwell on high. He's not going to, not, not merely going to dwell on high. He's not going to dwell merely apart from his people. He will dwell with his people. And if his people are going to be nomads and his people are going to be um, going from place to place, then so is he. And let me ask you, is this not what we see in Jesus Christ? A, a, a person who is, is God in the flesh. John tells us the word co-eternal with the father took on flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father. Yet, what did he do? He took on sin and suffering on the cross. He bore our iniquities. On him was the chastisement that was on all of us. Uh, he suffered in every way as we do, yet without sin, the author of Hebrews tells us. So this has been, this, he's developing, he's showing you the very character of God coming to the foreground here 
in David desiring to build God a house and God saying, no, not only are you not going to build me a house, I'm going to build you a bigger house. God is, is denying himself uh, what is, I mean, the whole earth is his. He can have anything that he wants. And he's denying himself those things and instead building David a house and honoring him, which is incredible when you really think about it. But there's another part of this that is when you consider some of the background uh, information to the, to the time period that makes this even more significant. Um, th- there's this pattern in uh, literature of, of the uh, Canaanite literature of the, of the time dating all the way back to 2100 BC. We've literally found these archeological evidence of this kind of development in, uh, 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 in history. Um, in Samaria, we found, or in the Sumerian dirt, we found um, a, a story basically about the god Enil and uh, who chose a king. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna have written his name down so I won't mispronounce it, Ernamu. Uh, the king's name was Ernamu. The god's name was Enil. And the king, uh, Ernam, uh, Enil, the god, had given the king victory over his enemies. And so the king built Enil this temple for him to dwell in and actually built a temple for his wife, too, uh, if you can imagine. And so the result of him building the temple for the king was that the king then rewarded him with more victories over his enemies. So you're following that structure. It went uh, king uh, that, you know, gives victory to the, or God gives victory to the king. King builds God a house. God gives further victories to the king. Um, We have in Egypt, similar story. Um, Tutmose III, uh, it has these military victories from Amun-Ra, his God. Gives, grants him these victories, so to speak, in, the, in this story. So he builds Amun-Ra a house, and Amun-Ra uh, rewards Tutmose III with more military victories. So again, we have this pattern of God gives victories. Uh, king establishes house for God. God gives more victories to king. Well, what do we have in this story? We have God has given victories to David, right? So what is David going to do? I'm going to build God a house, right? So let me put up the, this is the pagan materials we found. God gives favor, temple building, future favors from God. Here in the second story of second Samuel, there's victories. David, I'm going to give God a house. Yahweh says, no, you're not. I'm going to build you a bigger house. And then after that, somebody else will make me a house. So God, it seems the, the true God of the world isn't concerned with homes built by hands. I think somebody in Acts told us that one time that God does not, uh, you know, live in, in a house made by hands as though he needed anything from anybody. Um, this, this narrative, the way it's constructed is helping you to see that David is following a, a very typical pattern. God has been so gracious to me and he's probably doing it from great motives. God has been so gracious to me and, and I feel like I'm being so stingy to him. And so what, so what does he decide to do? I need to, I need to do something to show my appreciation. And this is a typical pattern. 
that kings go through. And God says, no, we're not going to follow that pattern because I don't need a house. And my, my, you can't contain my whole essence anyway in a house. And so uh, I'm going to build you a bigger house to prove my might and strength to the rest of the world. And eventually that king would come from David's lineage and he would be established on the throne forever. And in the person of Jesus Christ and his kingdom would never pass away. Um, so God eventually, and, and he also, Jesus incidentally was also the living embodiment of the, the temple of God there in the presence of people. So, um, there's this sort of reversal that's also taking place behind the scenes. It's sort of a cultural reversal as well. When you're reading these materials too, that, that are, are, are helpful to see, um, David's doing any questions. Oh, that I, I think I have one more Yahweh's favor. Um, so by giving more grace, he shows that he shows David that David does not place a, a claim on Yahweh's favor by building him a lavish tem- temple. Instead, Yahweh, the giving God, reviews past grace, lavishes more grace, and puts a temple on the back burner. Other questions? Any questions? None so far. Well, either that was long and boring and confusing, or it was clear. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know which which one. <laughs> All right. Is it, I think there is a question. Is there? Not that I can see. From David, I thought I saw one. Yeah. Uh, hands up. Go ahead, David. Uh, so the events of chapter six, defeating the Philistines, is far distant chronologically from the events of chapter seven because Edom only had it for three months. Okay. Yeah, that we don't know. Um, that that one's that one. There's some parts of this that are. I guess really what my point was is that the chronology is just really difficult to figure out because it's not. Uh, it's not that you're really supposed to unless they tell you um that this is when this happened what what we know is that there were ongoing battles with the philistines and you know that and and don't don't also don't misunderstand me or mishear me here all of these events took place no there's no question about that but where the where the biblical writer does not give you an indication of when they took place you can't just assume they took place at the next moment um, and so as far as the battle with the Phil- Philistines, uh, we know there were, there were plenty of battles with the Philistines. And so we're not entirely sure on exactly at what point those things came to, came to be, but the author doesn't seem very concerned about it at all. Yeah, go ahead, Katrina. I can see you. Okay. So David is offering sacrifices I thought only a priest could do that. Didn't Saul get in trouble for doing that? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Uh, How is David able to do that and Saul is not? That is a great question. Um, What's being established right now is, and and this is why the, the author of Chronicles starts picking up the story right here, is that, um, the king of Israel that's been placed in that position by God 
also is going to have the privileges of priestly duties. And why is that? Good question. David has a, there are priests and they are serving at the tabernacle in Gibeon. And there will be priests during David's tenure, Solomon's tenure, all the kings will have priests. Um, But David, there's coming this sort of convergence in the, in the story of, of king and priest. And then when you read the Psalms, you realize David is also a prophet. So you, you get this sort of prophet, priest, king. Um, we call it, we, the technical term for that is a motif, but is a, is a, a blending together of this sort of thread that you're to pick up on and that David's line is going to have that prophet priest king connection to them. And we'll discover more, some more from that along the way, but, but yeah, David can saunter into the presence of, of the Lord. And and Moses had some of this too. Um, I mean, Moses was dealing with the Lord face to face. uh, And in spite of the fact that Aaron was, you know, a high priest and doing priestly duties too, but Moses obviously didn't get struck dead, you know, by, by, by being near the, you know, or looking on the ark or whatever it was. So, but good observation. Yeah. Anything else? Oh man, that's a lot of stuff. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll, I'll leave the mics open for a little while and everybody can yak back and forth at everybody. And and then we'll, <laughs> we'll go Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time together, together to talk about um, things that are going on in, in the biblical narrative and um, how important it is to pay attention to keep our eyes open and to see what you're communicating to us. Uh, what, a, what an amazing thing it is to be conveyed to us that you sit far above um, the heavens and yet also dwell with us. Uh, what a crazy paradox that seems to us. And, um, and yet it's true. And, uh, you know, how, how life-changing that is knowing that, um, that by virtue of the Holy Spirit, you take up residence in your people, uh, that you lead us, that you guide us, that you shepherd us. Uh, and we, we cannot be anything but eternally grateful for that. Um, I pray that you would continue to grow um, in us as we understand more of your word, as we understand more of what it's saying to us and how it's leading us and teaching us and guiding us into holiness. And that, uh, as we understand more of it, that, uh, our affection for you would grow too, that our affection for things of the world would dissipate. And over time we would be a church, um, bursting forth with joy at the fact that, uh, our God not only reigns, but dwells with us and that we look for a day in the future when we will see your face and dwell with Christ forever. Um, what a day that will be. We look forward to that in Jesus name. Amen.